Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. God, we pray as we dig into your word this morning that there would be a tremendous testimony of your great faithfulness and the greatness of who you are. We pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. I wanted to say a couple of things as we get started in week number one of the story. We sang a song this morning about looking to God. God, we look to you. And sometimes we think, okay, what does that mean? Do I actually like look up and kind of imagine the ceiling not being there? And maybe there's a heaven up there and I'm trying to you know, find where God's at. When we talk about looking to the Lord, looking to God, we look at his promises. Like my dad read just from God's word, we look to God. We look at what he's, what he's spoken to us. We look at his character. We call out to him in prayer. We, we, we give our lives to him. These are the ways that we look to the Lord. And as we open up the stories, we dig into God's word together, we are looking to God in this. This isn't just a, a bunch of disjointed stories about some impersonal God that's out there. These are stories that are been, have been breathed out by God that reveals to us who God is and what he's like and the way of salvation for us. All these things are being revealed to us. And so as we dig into God's word today, what we're doing is we are looking to the Lord. This morning, we are going to dig into God's word together, and we are together going to look to the Lord. So I'm excited about this. Um, One of the things that is so important for us to continue to remember as we dig into the story, especially as we look in the Old Testament where maybe the picture of Jesus isn't quite as crystal clear as it would be in the Gospels, is that God is, is moving, God is revealing, and God is directing all the steps of humanity right from the very beginning. And it hasn't ceased today. And so, I know I told you a story before, but we, I, we're sitting in our, in our Old Testament class with a world-renowned professor and as we open up the Old Testament to begin to, you know, just unpack what God's doing in the Old Testament, all the, all the students in the class were all asking questions. Well, you know, how old is the earth? And, and how many days were creation? And, and how, what are the length of those days? And, and who are the, the Nephilim? And, and you know, where, where did all this take place? And there's all these questions that we're asking because we just want, we're just curious. Okay, when did dinosaurs fit in? And, and all these questions, right? And the wise old professor uh, kindly looked out and said to the class, look, those questions are fine. Those aren't bad questions to ask. But one of the questions that you are not asking is this. What does this reveal to us about God? That is the question that we are going to be asking week in and week out. Because as we look at these stories, these stories, they don't just move us along a timeline as in, like in a history book to finally get to Jesus where the real action happens, they move us to an encounter with an almighty God. So right from the very beginning, we encounter an almighty, sovereign, supreme God from day one. And right through every page of Scripture, we are encountering week in and week out a supreme and sovereign and majestic and holy and righteous God. And so that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be looking at these stories, but we're going to look at these stories in a way that moves us to this encounter with God. And so that's what we're so excited about this, because it moves us to an encounter with Almighty God. 
And I hope for us, if we haven't read the Old Testament in its length before, this, is be, this will be a great opportunity for us to do this. So we're going to go through one chapter a week. I would encourage you to read ahead in the, in the book, meaning read this week, read chapter 2, and when we get to Sunday morning, we'll talk about chapter 2. It doesn't take long. I am, a, I am an extremely slow reader. I read chapter 1 in 17 minutes, okay? So it doesn't take long, and I think I might have taken a phone call in the middle of that. So it shouldn't take very long. If you fall behind a month, it should only take you a few days to catch up. So I want to encourage you, if you fall behind, if you're behind now, if you know, I haven't started, and what am I going to read? And it doesn't, it won't take long to catch up. So please, I want you guys to get a hold of these books, begin reading uh, the, the books of the Bible, begin understanding what God's doing. And together, we're going to dig into God's word, and we are going to believe that God's word will produce a fruit in our lives and in our church and our families. Because God says, he says, I send out my word, and it does not return to me void, but it accomplishes the very thing for which I sent it to do. So we're going to believe that God's word will not return void to God, that it will accomplish the very thing that we're asking him to do. And so another thing along with the story is we're going to use some verbiage with the story, meaning this. There's three parts that we're going to look at every single week. So the first part is this, is called the upper story. So the upper story is what, God, what we see God doing in heaven. And, and so often we think, well, we just get this picture of what's going on on earth, which is what we call the lower story. And then we kind of wonder, well, what's God doing? Well, we want to inter- begin to introduce this idea of the upper story. So the lower story is what's happening here on earth in the Bible. The upper story is what God is doing in heaven. And then part of that, the third part, is this, my story. Where does all this taking place, what does it have to do with, with, really with us as God's people today? So we've got the upper story, the lower story, and then my story. Okay? Sound good? Okay. Let's open our Bibles. Let's open up the storybook. We're going to start reading in Genesis chapter 1. Or if you've got the story in front of you, we're going to begin reading in uh, page number 1, creation, the beginning of life as we know it. And I'm going to invite my dear friend Anissa to come read for us uh, chapter number one. And so if you want to open that up, I would encourage you, okay, as you open up these books, it is okay to write in your Bibles, all right? I'll just give you permission to do that. It is okay to write, to underline, to circle. What I want you to do is if you have your Bibles in front of you or your storybooks, begin to underline every time you see something that God is doing in chapter one. So God created, God saw, God said, God made, God called. Whatever you see God doing, begin to underline in your Bible, and we'll get a little bit better picture of what God is, is doing, because we're going to see that the main character of all these stories is Almighty God himself. And so, Anissa, if you want to come up, as Anissa is reading uh, chapter 1 for us, let us begin to underline all the places that we see God at work and what he's doing. Okay, Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. 
And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above, from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and the days and years, and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem teem with living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our own image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, and in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts on the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw that he made, he, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Amen. Thank you, Anissa. 
Lord, I pray that we would be overwhelmed by your greatness as we approach you in your word. God, let there be experience of each one of us that we, as we encounter the living God, let us not remain neutral. God, I pray that we would be moved by your spirit in Jesus' name. So in the beginning, we see God creating. God is a creator, and so in days one through three, God creates places. Then in days four through six, God fills the places. And so we see in the slide of creation, there's light and dark in day one, and then in day four, he fills the light and the dark with the sun and the moon and the stars. Day two, there's sky and water, and then day five, there's birds and sea creatures, and day three, there's land. And day six, animals and human beings. He begins to create, and then as a master craftsman, he begins to fill those places. He brings things to life out of absolutely nothing. Of all the creative genius of humankind and all the ability that man has, has been able to acquire in technology and all these things, man still has not been able to create something out of nothing. That's something that only God can do. God creates something out of absolutely nothing. All of our technology, all of our power, all of our wisdom, we still need something to create something where God needs nothing. As a master craftsman, we see him creating the heavens and the earth. I was thinking this week, and I've shared the story before about my experience assembling an Ikea dresser. And just briefly, we bought this dresser for my daughter, Adeline, and I'm going to set this dresser up in her, in her bedroom. And there's boxes everywhere, and there's parts everywhere. I take the whole thing out, lay everything out so I know where everything's at, and it, it's, it's fine so far. And we get halfway through the process, and of course, we start this experience at like a 9 o'clock at night, so it's midnight by now, and lo and behold, we're missing a piece. And I think, what am I going to do now? Her bedroom is just covered with nuts and bolts and pieces of wood and half a dresser. And so no problem, I'll call Ikea. And there's, there's Ikea, I think it's Schaumburg and Bolingbrook. So I call the one, I call the hotline or whatever it was. And, and uh, they said to me, you know what, I'm so sorry, but we don't have that piece here. I'm like, great, well, let's go to the other one, right? The, the other one, Schaumburg or Bolingbrook, I'll go to the other one. You'll have that piece. Or, no, actually we don't. That piece is out in like Switzerland or some, wherever they're at, Sweden or something. We'll have to get it mailed to you. And I'm like, well, how long is that going to take? Well, it's going to take weeks. As I look around this room, there's pieces everywhere. I'm thinking, in three weeks, this, everything will be gone. It'll all be missing and destroyed and, and just so furious. And I think that, that's been my experience as a master craftsman. I can't even put together a stupid dresser from Ikea. And as I'm sitting there thinking, what am I going to do for what do I do now? This whole room is completely consumed by dresser pieces. And I'm, as I'm cursing Ikea and the engineers who put this thing together, and I'm just so angry. But as we look at God's creative order, and God is a master craftsman, I just want to give you guys a, just a couple of simple facts about the universe and the earth and the human body, just to give us a context for what God, this God that we talk about as creator is like. So, it is impossible to make a physical model that shows man, planets, and stars on the same scale, right? So if we made the earth a quarter, the moon then becomes a pea, which we put 29 inches away from the quarter. The sun is nine feet across 
and it's a thousand feet away. All right. Now, so you get the scale, right? You got the quarter, then you've got the moon, which is uh, 29 inches away. The sun then becomes a nine foot uh, ball, and that is a thousand feet away. The nearest star, so then where would the nearest star be if that was the scale? The nearest star is 49,000 miles away from that quarter. Just to give you a context for how big and vast the universe is, right? There's galaxies, there's stars, there's, and we're just talking the closest, the next closest star besides the sun. It is 49,000 miles away on our little little replica scale. If the moon is 29 inches away and the sun's 1,000 feet away, the next closest star then is 49,000 miles away. All right. Let's talk about the earth a little bit. The total energy released by the tsunami in Japan, so if you remember that tsunami, I think it was 2011, was equivalent to the explosion of 6.7 trillion tons of TNT, or about 1,000 times the combined power of all the world's nuclear weapons. That's just one earthquake released that much energy. There was enough energy released to power the entire United States for a month. So if you think of all the consumption of energy across New York City and Chicago and everywhere else in the United States, we could power the U.S. for one month by just the simple energy released by one earthquake. All right? Now, let's talk about the human body. Human bone is as strong as granite. A block of bone the size of a matchbox could support nine tons of weight. If the human brain were a computer, it could perform 38,000 trillion operations per second. Okay? The world's most powerful supercomputer, which is called Blue Gene, can manage only 0.002% of that. So if the human brain was a, a supercomputer, it could perform 38,000 trillion operations per second. All right? So your body also produces 25 million new cells each second. Every 13 seconds, you produce more cells than there are people in the United States. And I think it says something along the lines of every month, we produce a whole new layer of skin on our bodies, head to toe. whole new layer of skin every single month. And so as we see in God's unbelievable creation that humanity is placed as the pinnacle of God's creation. Among all the things that God has created, only one is said to be created in the very image of God, and that's humankind. This, for us, it gives us worth and dignity and value, whether born or unborn, whether young or old, rich or poor, white or black, it doesn't matter. Every person, every single person walking on the face of the earth, born or unborn, is made in the image of God and has value and dignity and worth because that person's made in the very image of Almighty God. And so with all the the beauty and the majesty of creation, all the the, the solar systems and the planets and and the vast oceans, in the beautiful mountains, in the forests, it all takes a back seat to the care and love that God exhibits for people who are made in His image. So what God does is God creates all of this wonderful creation, creates, creates mankind, and God says He places them in a garden, okay? 
places him in a garden paradise, which is in modern-day Iraq. Okay, so if we see the, uh, the slide, so that is the world of the ancient Israel. And so the Garden of Eden would be somewhere along the lines of, if you want to put the next slide up, somewhere along the lines of um, right around, there you go. That's, the, that's a tree, okay? I know, it's high tech, I know. That's a garden, that's a tree, it's not a fist, it's not an ink spill. That's my shot at actually making something creative. So that's the extent of it right there. Um, that's a garden. So that's somewhere along the lines where the Garden of Eden would have been. Now, when we get to Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2 gets into more depth of the creation of, of Adam and Eve. And so what we see is, is man begins to name and, and look out at all the animals, and God says it is not good for man to be alone. So God causes Adam to fall into a deep sleep. Then as, as Adam is sleeping, God takes the brains out of Adam and creates woman. Just kidding. <laughs> takes the rib out of man, creates Eve. God brings them together in the first marriage. And then together, Adam and Eve live in God's beautiful paradise garden with God, walking with him in the cool of the day, in relationship with him. And then we get to Genesis chapter 3. Now, one of the things that the first few chapters of Genesis leaves absent for us is all of the questions that we want to ask about the dinosaurs, about how old the earth is, all these things. We want to ask all these things. It's not wrong to ask those questions. But if you look back and you see all the underlines in your, in your Bibles and in, in the storybooks that we've been reading, you begin to see that there is an almighty God who is the very centerpiece of our experience of creation and humanity. God is the very center of that. God is the one doing, God's calling, God's creating, God's looking, God's resting, God's, God's forming, God's doing all these. It is God. He is the centerpiece. He is the main character. He is the one at work through and through and through. And all it takes is just one quick glance down at your Bibles to see all the underlines to understand it is God at work. He is the centerpiece of all things. So God creates Adam and Eve, places them in this beautiful garden. And what God does is he takes Adam and Eve, places them in the garden. However, God puts in the garden two trees. Okay, if you want to turn with me to page 4 or Genesis chapter 2, page 4 of your story, top of page 4, or Genesis 2, we're going to look at verses 9 and verse 17. We read this. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 17, God says this, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And so we see the tale of two trees. The tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, both placed in the garden. God gives Adam and Eve a choice. He says, look, I'm not going to force you to follow me. You have an opportunity to decide whether or not you're going to eat from the tree of life or from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And by the way, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from it. From the, from the day that you eat from that tree, you will certainly die. Makes it very clear. It's not, comp- not complicated. Makes it crystal clear for Adam and Eve. So now we pick up in Genesis chapter 3. 
Now the serpent was more crafty, this is the top of page 5, than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the, from the fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, for you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, she also desired, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid themselves from God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave gave me some fruit of the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate it. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust from all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate, and ate from the tree of, about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand And take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And he drove the man out and he placed in the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now because of Adam and Eve's disobedience to Almighty God, in rebellion to him, they they were were around the tree and the serpent came and, and offered them really a pathway without God. Look, you don't need God to know good and evil. I, look, if you eat from this tree, you can, you can have what God is. In all, God's holding something back on you. Don't you want to know these things? And so instead of entrusting themselves to Almighty God and what He has to say, Adam and Eve took the fruit and ate. In direct disobedience and defiance, of the very thing that Almighty God had said, don't eat from this tree. They went ahead and ate it anyways. 
and the disobedience for rebellion against God has now been deposited in our spiritual DNA ever since. This has been the history of humankind. As we read through this story, we're going to see a pattern of rebellion against God week in and week out. As much as we want to think, oh, things will just, surely things will get better after this point, things will continue to move on in this story in a way that shows mankind's rebellion against God. So it's deposited into all of us from the very beginning. It doesn't take long after we've had a child. It doesn't take long for us to, to discover the rebellion that's in a child's heart from the very beginning of life. I remember one time when we were at a basketball game with one of our kids, and we said, okay, the game was over, time to go. I was at the Lincoln Center. We were watching one of our uh, relatives play a basketball game, and it was in the middle of the wintertime, so there's, the floor is covered with snow and dirt and just it was all sloppy, wet and stuff. And we told our son, it's time to go. We're going to leave now. So I don't want to go. We, we have to leave now. So instead of crying and kind of fussing like most kids do, he sprawls out and lays on the ground in the middle of the floor, face down in, in the mud and dirt, just filthy, and just lays there completely silent. And so people are leaving, and they're having to walk around this kid who's kind of like sprawled out on the ground. Everyone's like, what's, this, what's wrong with that kid, you know? It just lays there. So we pick him up, and he's just limp, and it's like, what? What's going on here? Why, why is every inclination of a child's heart so often it's just, no, I don't want to do that. No, I'll do my own way. No, I've got, I've got a purpose in my own heart that I want to see fulfilled. I don't care what you say. We see that from the very beginning of life. No one trains a child how to do that. That's in there from the beginning, all right? I never said to my son, look, if you don't want to go, all you need to do is lay on the floor completely sprawl out. It doesn't matter if the floor is dirty or not. You'll get your way then. Never said that to him. He figured it out on his own. That was his own doing. And he never saw anyone else do that either because people aren't laying around on the track when it's filthy dirty. He just, this is what he's decided to do. And so God's mercy is seen in the fact that he allows Adam and Eve, and this is, it's hard to get, but he says, look, your days are numbered. Instead of allowing Adam and Eve to live forever in a sin-ravaged world, he says, your days are numbered. You've eaten from the tree, your days are numbered. I'm going to bring you off of this earth, this place that is going to be plagued by sin and the people around you plagued by sin. And this is what exactly we see in Genesis chapter 4. Cain and Abel, the first family. Cain and Abel, brothers, Adam and Eve's offspring. Cain and Abel give uh, offerings to the Lord. Cain doesn't like what, um, or I should say, I'm sorry. Yeah, Cain doesn't like what, what God accepted Abel's offering. So what does Cain do? Cain murders his brother. So the very first family, you think your family's got problems? This is the very first family. One brother didn't like what the other brother had going on, so he murdered him, right? Murder from the, in the very first family. It continues on after that. Page 8 of the story, or Genesis chapter 6, we begin to read about Noah. Okay, And so what happened in Genesis chapter 6 is that humanity, from this point on, becomes increasingly corrupt. It says this, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. So the corruption of of humankind, the, the sin 
DNA, the spiritual sin DNA has been passed down from one generation to the next, from Adam and Eve to Cain and Abel, on and on and on, and finally across the whole face of the earth, humankind has become corrupt and rebellious against God. Every inclination was evil all the time. There has been a corruption, there's been a rebellion against God. But God finds one man righteous on the earth, and that's Noah. So God chooses Noah to build an ark to preserve the, the people on earth. And if there's my, yeah, that's the ark, in case you're wondering. That's the, that's the forest, or the Garden of Eden by Ur and up by Assyria. You can write a little, draw a little boat like I did. Um, probably a little bit nicer than mine. But nonetheless, that's where the ark, somewhere in modern day Turkey. And so Noah builds an ark. God brings the animals into the ark with Noah and his family, and his family is preserved. The judgment waters of God's, God's wrath comes out across the earth, and he does a reboot of the humankind. And he preserves, preserves Noah and his family. So God is going to start over now with Noah and his family. What do you think happens shortly after the flood? Knowing that we've got the sin DNA passed down from generation to generation, the flood doesn't change yet. What happens shortly after the flood? Well, the flood subsides, and Noah decides to plant a vineyard. No problem. Wants to drink some grape juice. Great. Noah plants a vineyard, makes wine, gets wasted, passes out, then wakes up and curses one of his sons. And so the sin seed then is continued to pass down from generation to generation. The spiritual sin DNA is still alive and well in humanity. All right, let's wrap these things up. We move in these chapters, the beginning of the Bible, to an encounter with a majestic and holy God who is, who is able to create from nothing, who's able to create universes and planets and stars, who's able to speak forth oceans and, and life that fills the earth. We're in, we encounter an, an almighty God who's far beyond our comprehension. He is far beyond our comprehension. When we think about the vastness, just simply the vastness of the universe, it, it, it's hard for us to even wrap our heads around. We think this is a God who just merely speaks forth the universes. Scripture says that he calls the stars out one by one by name. He knows all the stars by name, all the, 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 the trillions and trillions and trillions of stars Scripture says God knows each one by name. So he creates a universe. He creates the hummingbirds, and he creates the stars and the planets and the oceans. and creates these things all simply by speaking it forth with his word. He pronounces blessings, but he also pronounces judgments. He blesses creation. He blesses mankind. But then we see with the flood that there's also God's judgment against sin and wickedness and rebellion. God doesn't just somehow sweep it under the rug and forget about it. God deals with it. God can give life, but he can also take it away. And he's able to deal with the problem of our sin and rebellion. So, first thing is this. We see this, that God is creator. God is the creator of all humanity. When we talk about the Big Bang, it's not some evolutionary thing. It's the Big Bang of God speaking forth the universe. God is the one who's created the universe, not some evolutionary process. And even though Adam and Eve have sinned against God and rebelled against him, God has made provision for this. If you remember as, as we read that humankind, as is, is Adam and Eve rebelled against Almighty God, they realized what they had done. 
In some sense, their eyes were open. They realized that they had rebelled against God, so they tried to sew fig leaves together to cover over their nakedness and their shame and their guilt. But that wasn't good enough. So what did God do? God's, in his love for Adam and Eve, did this. He said he provided skins for them to cover them in their nakedness. God, is, God went and he, he killed an animal to provide the covering for humankind's sin. God made a way for them. In the same way for us today, when we think about our sin and rebellion, that's, that's, that DNA, that spiritual DNA of sin in our own lives, God has made a way for us as well. And that is through the shedding of blood of Jesus Christ. His death on the cross, he's able to cover over our sin and shame and guilt. It is because of Jesus Christ that we're able to approach an almighty God. That just like God had provided for, just like God had provided for Adam and Eve in their sin, God as well has provided for us in our sin, in our shame, in our guilt. He has provided for us in this that Jesus Christ went to the cross and he died for our sins and provided the covering that we needed of his righteousness that we could be acceptable and pleasing to God. That's why we're here today. That's why we're able to declare his praise. We're able to sing his praise and draw near to God. Not because of what we have done, not because of the, the fig leaves that we've sown together for ourselves, but because of the God's provision of Jesus Christ for us in that we are clothed with his righteousness. It says, all who approach God in faith, believing that he's died for our sins, believing that he rose again and accepted his, his, his offer of eternal life and forgiveness, we have this promise as well. That is where we are today. So when we think about my story, how does all this fit in to our life as a church? This is the seed of the gospel, that God has provided a way for each one of us. That God has provided a way in the death of Jesus Christ for us to draw near to him. Just like the animal's blood was shed to provide for Adam and Eve, Jesus Christ's blood was shed for our guilt and shame. Just as God used skins to cover over their shame, through Jesus' shed blood, our sins are covered over. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the gift of life. Lord, you are our creator. You are all-powerful. Lord, you know us, you love us, and you have provided for us that which we have needed most. God, thank you for the breath in our lungs. God, thank you for the life that you've given. But Jesus, thank you for the forgiveness of sins that we have through your shed blood. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.